Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and Beaches Vacation.com. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Today's episode is brought to you by Boulevard, a new home community in Dublin, California, now selling from the high 700s. It's where eight neighborhoods meet parks, amenities, and a great location down the street from BART. More at BoulevardNewHomes.com. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to tonight's program at the Commonwealth Club. My name is John Bolin, President Emeritus of KQED Public Media and a member of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors, and I'm really pleased to be introducing tonight's program. Our featured guests are Eric Schmidt, Jonathan Rosenberg, and Alan Eagle, three leaders at Google and Alphabet, and co-authors of the new book, Trillion Dollar Coach, the Leadership Playbook of Silicon Valley's Bill Campbell. The three men have led extraordinary careers in technology. Eric Schmidt served as Google CEO and chairman, Google executive chairman, and Alphabet executive chairman. Jonathan Rosenberg was a senior vice president and is an advisor to Alphabet executive management and formerly ran the Google product team. Alan Eagle is a director of executive communications at Google. Joining them in conversation is our distinguished moderator, Marissa Mayer, Marissa is co-founder of Lumi Labs, the former president and CEO of Yahoo, and she was an employee number 20 at Google back in 1999. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to tonight's guests. I'm going to sit over here. No, I get to sit next to Marissa. (laughs) I'm sitting with Marissa. Eric, go in the corner. Yeah, you're over there. I'm sitting with Marissa. Some things never change. (laughs) So uh, thank you, John, for that lovely introduction. Bill Campbell holds a special place in the hearts of all the speakers who are here tonight. As a former college football player and coach, both the title and attitude of the coach followed him throughout his lifetime. And strangely, it was that coaching mentality and his ability to spot talent and motivate people that made him so valuable to Silicon Valley. With methods that were somewhat unorthodox in the industry, Bill helped to mentor leaders and build some of the Valley's most iconic companies, including Apple, Google, and Intuit. To honor their coach, Eric, Jonathan, and Alan decided to compile the stories and wisdom of one of the most influential and most loved behind-the-scenes figures of Silicon Valley in their new book. We're incredibly grateful to have them here tonight with us to share the stories that they collected. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Eric Schmidt, Alan Eagle, and Jonathan Rosenberg. Uh, so I have a feeling my first question might be somewhat redundant, but it's where we have to start, which is, who was Bill Campbell, and why do you call him the trillion-dollar coach? Sure. Can I, can I take a minute and talk about the Commonwealth Club before, before I answer your question? Uh, this is an extraordinary institution, 
And I'm so glad you guys are here, and I'm so glad that, that it has continued. It's more than 100 years old. And, and the reason it has a special place for me is that when I was 22, I lived in Berkeley, and I would drive to Palo Alto to work at Xerox. And this was in the early period of Silicon Valley. And there was a show on Tuesday nights, which was the distinguished speakers of the world, and they all came here. And I imagined one day I might actually be on stage here. So I'm here. <laughs> and, and I will say, and Eric had been at Google for about a year in 2002, and Larry and Sergey got an invitation to come to the Commonwealth Club and speak. And he came in and was like, you guys, like, we've made it. You got the Commonwealth Club This was invitation. it. It was this <laughs> and the Today Show. Right? And, and, and what happened was Marissa got on the Today Show, and I was super jealous. <laughs> so, so in any case, uh, we call Bill uh, a trillion-dollar coach because he was the primary coach for Apple and Google, and in particular Steve Jobs, myself, and Larry Page, uh, generating close to $2 trillion of value. He is the most successful coach in the history of the world. Think about it. He was not a very successful football coach, though. Okay. No, no, no. That's a detail. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're talking about details now. Okay. Go ahead. So um, he was a football coach for the first 12 years of his career, coached at Boston College in Columbia, and didn't come, didn't go into business until age 39. And came to California in 1983, hired by John Scully to come to Apple. And uh, was part of the Macintosh launch and then ended up becoming CEO of Intuit and then went into coaching around year 2000, I think. So really three different phases of his career that built up to becoming the trillion-dollar coach. Remember the 1984 ad? Yeah, the famous Macintosh Super Bowl. He did it. He did it. (laughs) Alan? The... um, you did the research. <laughs> no, were, I take were, the credit. You did the you research. <laughs> I read about it. You you tell the story. Okay, Get I'll, the facts right. I'll tell. Okay. <laughs> you can see we worked together for about 15 years, and it was always like this. And yeah. this, by the way, is why Google has been so successful. When you use Google today, Marissa gets the credit. All four she's of us. the one who decides. She is the one who actually designed the Google that you use. So thank you very much, Chris. Okay, back to the Super Bowl ad. Back to the Super Bowl. They can just Google 1984 Super Bowl ad. Okay, I, you're not doing a good it. job. I will tell. I will tell the story. So, <laughs> so what happens is that Steve and Bill work with a, a then unknown advertising agency to come up with the ad, which was iconic. It was the welcoming IBM by. Again, having this woman run in and then smash the iconic screen. Uh, The Apple board actually said, don't run it. And they canceled the slot. And Bill managed to figure out a way to rebuy a different slot and run it without their permission, creating history. Today, when you look at the top five ads of television all time, this is one of them. Very cool. Well, I want to go back to the beginning for each of for each of you, and maybe for Alan in terms of the most colorful story you've heard, because Bill is full of colorful stories. How did you first meet and work with Bill? It was a long time ago. We were both younger. <laughs> you were really young, and but I was already a big shot. I was a senior VP at Excite at Home, and so Google was trying to hire me, and I figured like it was a foregone for, conclusion for the third time. Eric likes to remind me that I turned Google down twice. Super really big, big mistake. mistake. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. Twice. So I was coming to collect my offer, which Eric was going to make for me. It in, was in already fairness, preordained. 
the first time that Eric made you an offer, you accepted. That's actually true. <laughs> so I came to collect the offer and Pam Shore actually put me in a conference room and Eric had a strategy to ensure that I would accept the offer. He had Pietro Dova, who was our controller, show me the financials from the previous year. And we just launched price times click-through rate and AdWords was taking off and the company was actually minting money faster than most people knew. So Pietro shows me the financials and I'm like salivating like one of you know, Pavlov's dogs ready to sign. But Eric's coming in next, so I'm going to negotiate hard with the Schmidt guy because I'm a better negotiator than he is. And Eric doesn't come in. Somebody else comes in. So here, can you be me? You know how to be me. You're at the end of a table in a big conference room and you're sitting there by yourself and somebody comes in. Rosenberg, I've heard about you. I asked people around the valley. I asked John Doerr, isn't he here somewhere? There he is. He says you're a smart guy and you work hard. Don't give a shit. I got one question. Are you coachable? So, depends on the quality of the coach. And he looks at me, he hits, he like gets in my space and he hits me. I want, I want to and he says, smart Alex are not coachable. And he goes and he disappears into the micro kitchen. You've now, managed, you've now managed to turn down your third offer. I've managed to lose my third offer. I realize my Google offer has disappeared into the micro kitchen. So I go running out. Mr. Campbell, sir, Mr. Campbell, sir, I'm so sorry, Mr. Campbell, sir. Please come back in. And he's like, Rosenberg, butt in chair, back in room. (laughs) So I go and I sit and I wait and he makes me wait and I wait longer than I'm comfortable. (laughs) Finally, he comes back in and he delivers a lecture and it's a lecture on humility and it's a lecture on not being arrogant. And it goes on and on and on about what he looks for in people. And then finally comes back and says, got another question. If I were to be your coach, what would you want to get out of it? (laughs) And I I was a pretty arrogant guy. I was a senior VP. I didn't need a coach. But I needed one thing at this moment in my life, and it was an answer. So I'd seen Tom Landry on on an episode of some Bud Greenspan sports show, and he'd said... Former Dallas Cowboys Cowboys coach. coach. A coach is someone who hears the things you don't want to hear... And sees the things you don't want to see. So you can be the person you always wanted to be. How's that, coach? (laughs) And he looked at me like, you're full of shit, Rosenberg. But I think I can coach you. (laughs) And that was the beginning of my relationship with Bill. Every two weeks for the next 10 years, I was on Bill's couch. And Eric, do you, I think you have an equally colorful story about meeting Bill or or how he became Nothing Eric does is as colorful as me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, one of the one of the great heroes in this story is in the second row here is John Doerr. And uh, so thank you, John, for being here. And I'll embarrass you a little bit here. So John recruited me to Google, and I started as CEO. And, of course, I'm, at the time, super confident, very experienced, and so forth, working with a, a young team of phenomenal talent, including Marissa, uh, who, who I just adored everybody. And I figured, you know, I know what I'm doing. So John calls me up maybe six months after I start. I don't know, if John, if you remember this conversation. Literally on the phone, he says, uh, Bill Campbell's available, and you know he's going to come over and help coach you. And I said to, Bill, to John, I don't need a coach. After all, look how good I am, right? 
And, and I actually said arrogant words like, you know, why would I need a coach? So John is very clever. So he starts arguing with me and he says, look, this guy's really good, which I agreed with. I said, but I don't need one. And he says, look, do tennis players have coaches? Hmm. So I decided to argue back. And I pointed out to him that coaches of tennis players are not as good as the tennis players themselves. <laughs> I thought this was a pretty good re- rejoinder, right? And John, being super clever and knowing that I'm intellectual, says it's a different function, right? The ch- coach is different from the player. And then he got me, and I couldn't, he trapped me in an intellectual argument that I couldn't get out of. And I was forced to have Bill as a coach. So, of course, Bill shows up, and from the moment you talk to him, you realize that John was exactly right. The idea of coaching, which we initially thought was as an individual coach, was the best idea ever ever, ever made. And <clears throat> for the next 15 years, I don't think any of us understood that Bill was actually coaching the whole team the way he coached a football team. And again, we owe John a great credit for making this happen. And I can take you through all the things he did, or we can explore them. But I think something happened, and I want to say it very clearly, which is Bill actually invented a new product from Silicon Valley, which is the notion of a business coach that coaches the whole team. I've never seen this idea anywhere else. It's always mentoring and executive coaching around individuals. But what Bill did was different. He made sure that the team worked for the objective, just like a football team. And think about it. What's characteristic of football players? Prima donnas, arrogant, self-centered. Does that sound like Silicon Valley? It's a perfect fit. (laughs) Jonathan? John, if you can come back to the green room afterwards and teach me how to trap Eric in intellectual argument, (laughs) I would appreciate it. So I want to go next to what made Bill Bill, the essence of his leadership style. And the book obviously explores a lot of different themes, but, um, you know, maybe Alan, for you, there's many themes you've highlighted, but is there a theme that's particularly salient that when you ask what makes Bill Bill, there's an anecdote or one of the core themes that jumps Well, there's a few themes that really emerged from all the conversations we had. You know, it starts with being a really strong manager. You know, I don't want people to read the book. Wait, I do want people to read the book, but I don't want them to get the idea that all of this coaching is all you need to do. It really, you know, started with really strong management, being a really good performer, getting the one-on-ones right, things like that. But then Bill was really, really good at building trust with people. This came up over and over again. He would listen wholeheartedly, uh, you know, give good feedback, was really good at building trust, and then love. And that's a word you just, you, that really surprised me. You just don't hear that in the workplace. But people loved Bill. And he, you know, he wanted, you know, he, he thought to be a good coach, to be a good leader, you have to love your people. And that's, you know, that came over and over again. People, so many people welled up when we were talking to them about Bill because they just, they loved him and they missed him so much. Yeah, I think that was also, it started with loyalty and it started with the notion that he always had your back. And many people told us that, Uh, use that phrase, Bill had my back. And he had your back when he pushed you to do better. You know, in the book, we talk about him being an evangelist for courage. It's a lot easier to be an evangelist for courage and try something with one of your OKRs that Larry and Sergey are pushing you on that you really don't think you have a chance of achieving when you know that Bill is going to have your back. And, you know, then he he was generous. um, And as Alan said, you know, there's this concept of love, both for you as an individual but I think also 
for us as a community. You know, he would constantly create events and do things with the community, even with kids on the Sacred Heart football team. If he was going to take everybody to a Giants game, he showed up with a bus, right? And everybody went together on the bus. And Jonathan, you mentioned his management principles, as did Alan. Can you recite? He had a set of principles about one-on-ones and management principles that you had to get right. So now I'm taking orders again. Sure. <laughs> um, so a couple of things. I mean, the, so he wanted, he, he felt, he, he had a phrase that your title makes you a manager, but it's your people that make you a leader. And to be elected captain of the team as a leader is the compliment of the highest order that your people will only do for you if you show them that you actually have management principles and that you're adhering to them and doing them correctly. And, you know, a couple were one-on-ones, right? He had this technique for doing one-on-ones and you would show up and you would share five things with him and you'd bring your list and he'd then look at his list. And if the lists were the same, then, well, Jonathan's priorities are straight today. And if the list was different, then he'd fix it and tell you what your priorities should be. And they were always around performance on the job against your objectives. But more interestingly, they were about relationships with your peers, things that you were doing to drive innovation because he felt that uh, making better products was, was critical, and then your management practices. So it was kind of the same formula every time. Well, it wasn't always the same formula, though. Remember, we, so we, we were writing that chapter about one-on-ones, and Jonathan says, this is how Bill did one-on-ones. And so we get together every week or two. And Eric would say, that's not how Bill did one-on-ones. You would walk into the room and there would be five words on a whiteboard. And that's what we talked about. And Jonathan said, no, no, I have my card. He has his card. We compared him. And Eric said, no, no, five words on a whiteboard. And we figured out that he tailored the one-on-ones because Eric didn't really need the prioritization exercise that you needed. <laughs> You're laughing a little too hard, Marissa. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was because I didn't hear, I didn't have the five things, at least during my. You didn't have that either? I didn't have the five things. That's because I had already given him the list. Can we we pause for a sec, Sister Marissa, since you're, since you were very much a part of this team for the whole time and spent a great deal of time. How did Bill make you feel? Uh, I would say, you know, Bill. I think I think that you latched onto the right word, which is coach, because I felt like Bill always made me want to be better, work harder, achieve more, and really I really felt pushed and and both critiqued but also inspired in a way that made me better. Yeah. Well and he did inspire you told us a great story. One of the second things he would do after teaching you to do great one on ones was he would teach you to do trip reports at the beginning of staff meetings. Eric always did these trip reports and, you know, we would use Google maps for them and we would sort of show each other where we went. We would make observations about, you know, what internet connectivity was like in this country and what we saw. And it sort of brings everyone's guard down and it starts the staff meeting where everybody's sort of, you know, girded for a fight with a dynamic where everybody can kind of talk and and establish a rapport for each other. And you reinvented that. I remember you told us at Yahoo. Yeah. So my, my story on this was... Um, for years, I worked hard. I wanted to be on the executive staff or a lot later the operating committee of Google. I finally got promoted to be on it. The first time I actually went to the operating committee meeting, it's a three-hour meeting on Monday afternoon. The entire first hour was trip reports. The other executives just talking about their weekends, their observations about how fast their internet is or isn't in this place or that place. And I was like... What did I want? Like, what was I hitting for here? <laughs> and, uh, 
And, and also, the, there was also been this phenomenon earlier. We would have these quarterly management offsites. And, you know, it was a busy time at Google. And I remember once, like, there were these long breaks. There was, like, a long coffee break in the morning, and there'd be, like, an hour and a half or a two-hour lunch, and a long coffee break in the afternoon. And, like, we were all really busy, right? Like, you could just tell, like, everyone was, like, itching at that time. Like, people didn't really have cell phones and, like, and the ability to be, like, online when you're at an offsite. And so I was like, Eric, like, what is with all these breaks? Like, we should be going over this or that. And he was like, no. At a management offsite like this, you have to have the breaks be as long as possible. So maybe, Eric, you can talk about why the trip reports, why the long breaks, because it was a key idea of both. I don't know about you all, but these jobs have so much pressure now. You've got to come up with some ways to humanize them. And I think it's much worse now because of the the new set of Internet companies than it was 10 10 or 15 years ago. And uh, the other thing, Alan made this observation, that he'd always assumed that as you went up in the organization, the um, executives became more self-actualized, more secure, more confident, more capable, and the inverse is completely true. So you have, am I quoting you correctly? Roughly, yes. It, you, what you said was actually worse than I said, right? <laughs> so, so the important thing is you've got to come up with some way to start humanizing this process. So the trip reports and the sort of ultra-long breaks was a way of telling people to slow down because I knew we were putting such pressure on ourselves, by the way. Part of your success as our as our sort of key person, the user designer for all of Google, is you had 100 people, you had a gazillion projects, and so forth and so on. You have no time. So I had to force you, if you will, to take just enough time to talk to your peers and, and spend that time. Uh, and it worked, right? And it's interesting that Jonathan started with three product managers, yourself, Susan Wojcicki, and Salah Kemagar, right? The story speaks for itself. Look at the success of these three individuals under, even under Jonathan's leadership. It's amazing. Well, wait, wait. I, kept them under the, I kept them under the delusion that all we did in your staff meeting was work. And actually, we were just telling stories and trip reports. But it actually, it actually reminds me of anyway, my staff. Anyway, I think we've di- well, distracted your, oh. your questions here. Well, no, so, my, so to answer Jonathan's question to me, what I did when I got to Yahoo is, and it's funny because I actually think it may have been Bill-related because I, I came from Jeff Wiener, who's, of course, now on the Intuit board, so that might have come full circle. But what we did is we would go around the table and we would again take, I had all my executives talking to me about why is there so much time at the beginning of staff meeting, but what we would do is we would go around and everyone have to say thank you. They had to say thank you to another member of the executive management team. So, you know, thank you for helping me recruit a new VP of engineering. You know, thank you to I the should, HR and events. That. That's really clever. And, so, so they, they, and you couldn't repeat. So there was like a strategy to where you sat at the table you'd, you'd run out of and like, you know, how, how original your idea was going to be that day. And it's so funny because at the end of my time at Yahoo, I started seeing these notes and emails to each other uh, among the executive staff that started referring to the family prayer. <laughs> and I was like, what is the family prayer? And like, I finally asked someone and they said, oh, is that part of the beginning of a staff meeting where you make everyone go around and say thank you? <laughs> like, well, I, used, I used to run my staff meeting, and of course it was on Monday afternoons after Eric's, and what I would try to do is just dispatch with all the action items. And of course I had Susan and Salar and Marissa and later Sundar, who you helped us hire. And so I thought my life was like going to be pretty easy and cushy because I would just, as long as I didn't get more than four things in each of Eric's staff meetings... You know, I'd just go dole them out, and then I could take the rest of the week off. And, of course, Bill Campbell sat in my staff meeting a couple of times, and he said, well, you're doing it all wrong. You should give the action items out in pairs. 
And I was like, well, Bill, that's really stupid. I mean, I'm all about efficiency. I give something to Susan, she'll get it. And I said, no, give everything in pairs. I'm like, what, Bill? He says, well, next time you're going to run an offsite for your stuff. Give it to Susan and Marissa. I'm like, they're both very capable. They don't both need to work on it. He said, well, they both need an opportunity to work together a little bit. And if they work together on this, then they'll be a lot better when there's a lot of conflict between ads and search. So Bill would actually institutionalize giving action items in pairs, which no, I've never and, heard and anybody my, say you should My do. first one was the AdWords International business model, which Susan and I remember like right. pouring over that Excel spreadsheet so, so, hours. So everybody understands why this is so important. In all of my professional career before Google, the executives spent most of the time battling over resources, promotions, and they would never share. So Bill's rule of doing things in pairs, and the harder the problem, the better it was to give it to two people, produced a culture where the executives would actually solve the problem together. And they would willingly hand a 1,000 people over to the other person. It's shocking. I've never seen this human behavior. So these little rules have enormous downstream impact in a large corporation. So I wanted to talk about one of the more curious anecdotes uh, from the book, which is that when Google went public in 2004, um, Bill recommended that you step aside as chairman but remain CEO. Uh, and then he made sure that you got reinstated as chairman a few months later. Uh, what was his philosophy behind that thinking? Well, so, so there was a complicated political structure within the, the board prior to the IPO, and for various reasons, it was agreed that there needed to be another chairman now. And I, of course, had been CEO and chairman up until that point. Um, and my feelings were super hurt. My pride was hurt. So Bill informs me of this. And I said, you know, the equivalent of screw it, I'll just quit. And um, which would have been the single stupidest thing I've ever done in my whole life. So, <laughs> so we're clear. We're talking about true idiocy. But nevertheless, this is what I did. The facts are there. And so I called him up. I called him up and I said this. And he said, let me come and talk to you tomorrow, which gave him time to consider it. So he shows up in my office and we chatted about it. And I said, look, you know, I've been doing a great job. I think eventually I'll be chairman, not CEO, which ultimately, as you know, occurred. Um, and I don't want to foreclose that option. Uh, and I don't know. I'm not involved in any of these issues. And I'm busy. Right. Like, you know, let me do my thing. Don't make any changes. And he looked at me and he said, I will please let this happen and I will fix it for you. And his, my trust in him and my belief in his ability to solve problems was such that that was enough to get me to not do anything stupid. Right. And indeed a year later it was, it was essentially addressed in a different way and I became chairman again. And I tell you the story because that's a metaphor that that's a metaphor for the team coaching. The priority in these organizations is the team and you have all these players. They all have egos. I was particularly bad, obviously, right? Huge ego. You know, it hurt my feelings. I misbehaved. And Bill, his job, he was trying to get me back on the team, back to playing a, t a team play. And he figured out a way to do it. And I saw him do this over and over and over again. And so the reason I want to emphasize this so strongly is that's what a coach of team does. And if you think about it, think about every, you know, start with the president of the United States and the cabinet and so forth. All of these high-priority teams, are they're all fighting against each other internally. A coach would get them to all play the same plays in some rational way in order to win. And Bill did that. Yeah, and he would also say you can't do anything without a team, which actually gets to the moment when I almost quit, which was at about a year before that. And um, you were involved. And uh, I was busy trying to hire people. 
Oh, I and think I should tell the story. I think I know it's the story. Do you actually remember the story? Well, I'll, I actually, I'll, it's my, it's my it, next question. No, no, no. That's, that's <laughs> actually, no that's actually, your next question actually comes a year later. This is before your next question. Uh, would you, would you, you just talk? Oh, I have to let Miss no. ask her next question? Yes, yes, you yeah. have to let Miss actually talk. Okay. No, no, I'll, I'll, I'll see to Jonathan this time. I'm going to answer my question anyway, but you can ask her question. But you remember, because it was after actually 10 months, and I'd been busy trying to hire people and failing. Okay. I kept hiring... I kept going out looking for people like me, and they were better than me. You know, they had MBAs, and they were smarter, and they got better grades. And then we would send them on to Larry, and he would look at them, and he'd just go, no. (laughs) And so it had been 10 months, and I hadn't hired anyone. And I was on Bill Campbell's couch ready to quit, and I was finishing my session, and Marissa came. And my session started to go over, and Marissa was like, why is Jonathan so unhappy? And Bill was like, well, he can't hire anyone. And Marissa says... Well, that's because Larry doesn't like people like you. (laughs) He likes people like me. And if he wasn't a football coach, I would have strangled her. (laughs) And she then was very excited. She was like 26 years old. And she comes up with, well, I have a vision for a program. It's going to be called the APM program. We're going to hire the best people, the best computer scientists at all these colleges all over the country. And we're going to teach them business because, as Larry says... Business people aren't smart enough to learn computer science, Jonathan. You'll never figure out the computer science. But business is easy. You can just teach the really smart APMs that I hire business. And who were all of those APMs? Brian Murkowski, who now leads uh, Android and Chrome. Um, Clay. Clay Babor, who's leading virtual reality. Brett Taylor, who's the president of, of Salesforce. Of me. Avni. Avni, who's running education. Yes. So, Marissa, thank, thank you. Jonathan, I didn't can, quit, and you <laughs> saved me. Jonathan, can I, can I assist you? Oh, please. She's the one who assisted me. It was, yes. actually, it was actually a bet. And she's the one who deserves the credit, Jonathan. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I, I, I just want to emphasize another innovation that occurred in early Google is not a Bill innovation. It's a Marissa innovation, and it's called the APM program. And the way this worked was that Marissa said there's a cohort of people who are coming right out of college, and they're computer scientists, but they don't really want to be programmers. They want to do product management, business, and so forth. And so I said, this is a great idea, right? So Jonathan and she administered it. And this is the single most successful talent program in the history of the Bay Area because virtually all of the startups that I'm aware of seem to have somebody who went through the APM program. And Marissa took this with great gusto. So she would take them on trips. These are all 22-year-olds. She'd put two in a hotel room. She'd fly them coach, and she'd work them to death, right, for a week. Learn Uh, how Google works in all these other countries. And and to this day, now these are now people in their late 30s and so forth, very, very senior people. They talk with reverence for the APM program and what Marissa did for them. I was so impressed that in my personal philanthropy, we are copying your idea, Marissa. Well, this is really pretty funny because at one of the management offsites with the really long breaks, right after I had hired the first three people or so, Eric got up and said like the nicest things he's ever said about me and the, tw- and the APM program. He's like, she's hiring all the smartest 23-year-olds in the world. They're going to come here and get product management really going. One of them will probably end up running the company one day. We'll see what happens. Which was true. And uh, <laughs> and the nice thing was, so then like during the long break, I decided I should go over to Eric and like take a little victory lap because like you know i was clearly in his good graces and he was like yes and he was like but 
He's like, they're not listening to anyone. They're, they're, they're making all the engineers really upset. They're completely screwing everything up. And you need to get this under control. You need to go talk to Bill Campbell, get these people coached, and actually fix this. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> so I immediately like, mailed Bill. I was like, help. I barely need coaching for these APMs. Like, Eric told everyone they're great, but like, he actually told me they need help. And it was interesting because Bill came and did a group, uh, to the point of coaching the whole team. There were seven of them, did a group, um, uh, a group session where they all talked about, and he just had like, he just asked them the question, when, what, when, do you, when do you get, you know, what, what's going wrong? And they all went on and told long anecdotes about what was going right and wrong. And of course, I was very impatient because I was like, wait, like we could just summarize this. And, and at the end, Bill turned to me and he, it was interesting because he said, uh, you know, look, all their stories were the same. And I said, no, no, they weren't. I don't, I mean, they were all very different. Like this one's on Gmail and he's having a problem here. And, and he said, no, they were all the same. They all get stuck. And they don't know what to do next. And you're not the right person to help them because you've been here. You've been part of Google. You've grown with it. You know what to do next. It's like you need to get the management coaches to actually help them so they have somewhere to actually air what some of the, what's getting them stuck and how to figure out what the next step is. Um, so it's interesting because the APM program, because of Bill, everyone has their manager and then they have their management coach, which they actually use to, to help them get back. Is Maureen Taylor here? Maureen Taylor Maureen was their management here, yes. coach. Yeah. So, because Bill is, of course, he had lots of energy, but he didn't have infinite energy for the 40 or so people we ended up hiring a year. So I met Maureen, stepped in, and, and did the management coaching for them, which was amazing. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Today's program, Trillion Dollar Coach, features Eric Schmidt in conversation with Jonathan Rosenberg, Alan Eagle, and Marissa Mayer. This podcast is brought to you by Boulevard, a new community in Dublin, California, with homes now selling from the high 700s. It's active, connected, and modern, where eight new neighborhoods welcome fresh energy with space to grow, along with 15 themed parks, the future 31-acre community park, and the rec center coming late in 2019 all just down the street from BART, shopping, recreation, and entertainment. Learn more at boulevardnewhomes.com. Now, back to the program. So, but back to Jonathan. So Jonathan Uh-oh. is my longest standing manager. Uh, he was, he put up with me for nine years, or I should point out, I put up with him we for nine years. Each other. <laughs> and one of the biggest points of contention during our time uh, as manager and, and reportee was that Jonathan always wanted to hire business people, <laughs> which of course was Jonathan speak for MBAs who may or more likely may not have a degree that was technical. Um, and one of the interesting things that I remember Bill saying at one point was at one point during this whole controversy, he looked at me and said, you know, Marissa, the one thing that's almost always true in companies is people always want more people like themselves. <laughs> like, um, and in that, Bill stepped in. I remember he coached you, me, Salar, Susan, and tried to get to a reasonable proposal for could we, was there any expertise to add? Could we add expertise? Maybe you can talk a little bit about that process because yeah. it took, took a few months for us. I mean, to again, but that, that was Bill's concept of, you know, work the team before you focus on the problem. And, you know, he, he was good at, he actually interestingly wasn't a technical guy. You know, he didn't make technical and strategy decisions, but he did make like marketing decisions. So he decided that we'd come up with a way of marketing some of these business people through Larry, if we called them something else. And so he came up with this name, BPM, which was business 
product manager. And we hired Richard Holden and we hired Deep Nishar and we, what's this? Who's the CEO of Google? We hired Sundar as a BPM yeah. first. <laughs> so Bill was right. And Jonathan was right. Yes, Eric, it's, now right. you finally said something nice about me, too. <laughs> and Sundar was, told us, you talked about you know, focusing on the team, not the problem. Sundar told us when he transitioned up to the CEO role, that's one thing that Bill really told him was, think about the team. Think about the team first. Even, spend even more time on that. Um, one of the things you talk about in the book is the power of serendipity. Uh, and one of the things I remember about Bill was he told me this anecdote about the power of spontaneity, but also the ability to be spontaneous and focus on the most important thing. He told me an anecdote about a person, a meeting um, that a CEO had prepared for. They had done lots of slides, spent like an entire weekend doing the slides, uh, and he met with them right before, and he never told me who it was, but the slides said nothing. And he said, wait, like you're going to get up and you're going to give this kind of pat talk that makes everything in a pretty picture. doesn't talk about some of the big issues facing the company. Like you're going to hurt your own credibility and, you know, it doesn't really address the issue at hand. And he made the CEO dispense with the slides, be late for the meeting and spend 10 minutes out there with him on a scratch piece of paper, rewriting the complete talk. And that most people at that company basically said it was the best meeting ever because it actually focused on the most important things uh, that the company wanted to talk about and needed to focus on. Um, Alan, you talked to so many people in preparation for this book. Are there other examples of that kind of spontaneity or that drive to focus on sometimes the tough stuff, but the most important stuff? Well, you mentioned Clay before earlier, who now runs the, uh, the virtual reality team at Google. And Clay told us this story when he was, I think, just a group product manager, and he was starting in virtual reality, and, and he wanted to present it to the board. And we had a product called Cardboard, which was a cardboard box, and you put your phone into it, and it becomes a virtual reality viewer. And they had an experience called Expeditions, where you could go travel around the world. And so he was essentially teaching this to the board members at Google. And he was very nervous, and they're fumbling with the box, and how do you turn this thing on? And then from the back of the room, he heard this, this loud clap. And, of course, it was Bill cheering for him. Okay, we'll try it out. I'll try it out. Okay, so imagine a very loud, raucous clap. Everyone, how's Marissa doing? And what so about, there's, what about the audience? How, how's the, they're great. I love your audience. Yeah. What about the authors? <laughs> did, did you notice what happened? Aside from a lot of self-praise, the energy of the room went up. Your physical energy went up. Everybody's mood improved, right? I don't know about you all, but how many long, boring meetings do you sit through per day? Do it in the middle of the meeting. He would just sort of randomly do it. And this was, and, and he would, it would get the energy up and it would also keep momentum going. So if you're trying to affect the decision, everyone's cheering. It's harder to say no. And so now Clay on his team, they call it the Bill Campbell clap. He's got a team of several hundred people, I don't know, a thousand people. And when you do, you say Bill Campbell clap, they all do that. Yeah. So Dan Rosenzweig was just there cheering. You got to tell his story with Bill. Maybe we should have Dan tell a story. No. Okay. I'll tell the Dan story. Um, so, but she asked about spontaneity. Well, his, his story is, his okay. prop was spontaneous. Okay. okay, so Dan, hopefully I will not mess up the story, but uh, Dan's the CEO of a company called Chegg, and when he took over Chegg, it was not as good as everyone had told him it would be. He thought they were months away from IPO, they were months away from bank failure, you know, bankruptcy, two different things. <laughs> and so finally he sort of stabilized the company, and they get to a point where they're not hemorrhaging money, and they're not going to go out of business anytime soon. 
and he's pretty happy. And so Bill comes in, Dan sees Bill come in across the office, you know, he's in the door over there. And when Bill came in, it was like a party arriving and he'd hug everybody, but he was wearing this eye shade, like an accountant eye shade that they used to wear a hundred years ago, these green eye shades. And Bill was wearing an, an accountant's eye shade. Like, that's weird. He's coming around saying hi to everybody. And he gets into Dan's office and he throws the eye shade at him. And Dan's like, what's that about? And he goes, congratulations. You're the best no growth CEO in the Valley. <laughs> And that's not what you want to be. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that we heard over and over again was that in private, Bill was brutally direct. Yeah. And as much as we're celebrating the motivation and the fun and so forth, one of the things about trust is real, direct, honest feedback. If he didn't think you were coachable, or in particular, if he thought you were trading on your own account as opposed to for the company, he would be brutal at you. This is the second book you guys have written together, I think, right? This is the second. So is this book an extension of how Google works, or are there some contradictions, or are there some things that look like contradictions that actually aren't? Well, one thing we found, you know, the thesis of how Google works is that there's a certain type of employee, a smart creative, and the function of a company, a successful company, builds an environment where they can get together and succeed at scale. And as we started to talk to a bunch of smart creatives who we'd work with, we realized that we were missing something, which is what Eric alluded to earlier, is that these people, these smart creatives or any people, they work as teams. The building blocks, the building block of a great company is great teams. But for teams to be great, you need to have coaching. And so that was the part that was missing from the first book. And, you know, everyone here is going to be saying, well, okay, I need a coach. I need to go find a Bill Campbell. But the other part of it is that really the best coaches for the team are the manager of that team. So all of these things that we're talking about, whether it's cheering or pairing people or trip reports, anyone can do. These are the tricks of coaching that any manager can do. And in fact, we, we've decided we, we want you all to buy the book, as Jonathan say, at independent bookstores. Yes, but you dodos, you're missing. Marissa's setting you up. Computer scientists can learn marketing and business. <laughs> She's setting you up to say you can buy both books as a paired oh. set in independent <laughs> bookstores this week. Because the sooner you buy it, the faster we go up on all the lists. Now, what did you is want? See, they, they can take cues. They are coachable. Yeah. <laughs> at least Jonathan is. <laughs> like, well, I, I was actually not going to talk about that at all, Jonathan. But thank <laughs> you for that. Okay. <clears throat> so, so, again, we would very much like you to buy both books in independent books <laughs> this week. But the other thing we did is we put together a slide share of 36 slides, uh, which is for free. You can type Trillion Dollar Coach Slide Share into your favorite search engine, hopefully Google. And you'll find it. And we tried to codify in the slide share the exact principles. What are the rules? And when you read them, you'll say, oh, that's obvious. Oh, that's obvious. Oh, that's obvious. Okay. If it's so obvious, why are you not doing it? And I trust that none of you are doing all of it. I have some questions from the audience, and one of them I think pertains to this, which is the question of what do all of you see as the picture of the future of work? So when we talk about the smart creative, when we talk about coaching, we talk about the style of how people want to get things done and accomplish things, what do you see as the picture of the future of work? Uh, well, I don't think it's a remote environment where everybody phones in their work product. Uh, I think it's the kind of environment that you see when you go to a typical Silicon Valley startup. Uh, I think it's an environment where everybody's communicating, uh, where everybody's sharing ideas, uh, where they're you know, morphing these ideas and not killing them, as you often used to say when you started your lectures on innovation at Google. Um, so 
I think it's, it's people that are technically savvy, uh, that understand data science, that understand the ways that machine learning and artificial intelligence are fundamentally uh, going to change. And I think it's I think the big things that we're going to see that will be the most significant were, will be areas where we're longitudinally tracking data, whether or not it's from some device that's on your body that's helping you with, with healthcare, or whether or not it's some other data sets that we haven't actually mined in some way that are going to allow us to be m- much more innovative at, at delivering goods and services to people much, much more cheaply. And that's completely going to change the, the dynamic of the workforce. It's going, to, it's going to create more jobs, I think, than it destroys because it's going to bring down the price of goods and services and people are going to buy more. When I look at the current workforces, especially in the, the young startups, they're impossibly fast, right? The amount of information that's going through, the searching, the indexing, the use of Google Docs within these firms and so forth and so on. And I think that is the future. Uh, it's also true that these impossibly fast people need a coach impossibly faster, right? That all the human dynamics just happen faster. Well, and you mentioned the word humanity earlier, I think, and I hope the future of work is humanity. You know, the through line and all of these things that Bill did was about community. And companies and teams are going to be a lot more effective when they care about each other and they care about what they're doing and there's more humanity involved. So I hope that's part of this future. And on the humanity point, and also to pull in another question from the audience, one of the things that was really important to Bill was diversity. Different kinds of people, women, minorities, really being part of it. Uh, And the question from our audience is, what specific steps are currently being taken by Silicon Valley leadership to assure that AI and future technologies are designed with input from women and underrepresented uh, groups? Um, and maybe you can talk a little bit about what Bill did to try and bring that voice well, and get more diversity so, into the so, discussion. So two parts of the question. As a matter of AI, there's a core problem in AI, which is it uses large sets of training data. And there's a great deal of evidence that the training data that's being fed into these systems that have human impacts have biases that come from human biases. And there's a very active area of research of how to squash that bias so that you get a more accurate rendition of what you want, as opposed to something which perpetuates stereotypes, biases against women, minorities, and so forth and so on. Bill's position, um, again, died three years ago, uh, was to focus on inclusion and diversity among the executives and among the teams. And he had a pretty simple rule, which was you could absolutely have a diverse workforce and an inclusive workforce. It may take a little bit more time. Yeah, he would always tell us that uh, when you were testing something from a product perspective, 51% of your audience was women if it was a consumer product. He also really, he strongly believed that diversity was your best defense against myopia and you wanted diverse teams. We heard lots of stories uh, from some of the women we interviewed. Shelly Archambault, uh, who's a CEO, is one example. He had a group of women who would come once a quarter to his office in California Avenue. And, you know, he would usually have some different topic du jour. But before the end of the meeting, he would always say, if you're looking for a board member, look around this room find somebody who was in this room and, and, and appoint them. So he was, a, he was a, a strong proponent of diversity throughout his career. Uh, I think one of the, it's either one of the chapter leads or one of the big quotes that's pulled out in the book. Um, talks about team first, then work on the problem. And there's lots of times when Bill did that. Um, maybe, Alan, you can come up with some anecdotes about what are some of the... Well, we got that quote, the initial quote from Ron Shiram, who is a Google board member. And they were talking about a situation... 
one of the groups was going through money through, through money too fast or something like that. And Rom started to talk about the problem. And Bill said, no, let's stop. Who's working on the problem? And it's a simple, again, a simple flip. And it's a, it's a coach's approach, which is, you know, most of us as managers, well, we have a problem. Let's go work on the problem. What's the data? And he would take a step back and say, no, no, think about who, who is the team working on the problem. And if you have the right team working on the problem, they'll fix the problem. So, so I would argue that, that he taught instead of problem first, opportunity first, he would start with people first. If you have the right people, the right thing will happen. And often the right person is not one of your direct reports. Often somebody who will be your part of your solution is relatively deep in the organization but has infinite knowledge of what's going on. Jonathan and I were reminiscing about a, a sales meeting we were in where the executives were all talking, and then there was a woman at the end of the table who didn't say a word, and then there was a question that only she could answer. And it turns out that all of the things that every, every one of the executives was saying were actually incorrect. She knew everything, right? And I was so embarrassed because I hadn't gone to the most knowledgeable person. I had simply assumed that title de- de- determined outcome. Uh, and I learned my lesson. Yeah, so if you, if you get that right team together, then you need to make sure to talk to everybody on the team and draw all of their perspectives. Uh, one of the questions from our audience is uh, around how do companies find their own bill? So it says, I'm a 39-year-old tech leader. I've been successful and happy with the teams and companies that I've built. How do I find my bill? You can ask Jonathan. Uh, well, I think one of the we, we really believe that the principles that we've articulated and tried to codify in the book are things that any manager can do. And people don't do them, but they can do them. So I don't think every 39 year old startup manager necessarily needs a bill. I think what they need is every manager to focus on the things in the book, the leadership principles, the the get your people to elect you captain of the team, establish trust, you know, start with the team first, build love, build community. I think these are things that anybody can do. Uh, and, and if they need a coach, well, we, we've already, we've already said nice things about Maureen Taylor, who's our favorite coach and she's in the city. Or even if you're not a manager or a team leader, like, like one of the things that Bill really emphasized was the importance of peer relationships. So I think when you're a young, you know, younger employee, you start thinking about, okay, what's my manager want managing up? Or if you have a, you know, if you have a team for the first time, I'm going to focus on my team, but think across, build relationships across the company. And again, that's something really anyone can do. Uh, and, you know, so just start practicing these principles and become that coach. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm missing my cue. I'm supposed to say, buy the book at independent bookstores. <laughs> Um, Bill obviously worked with a long of strong personalities, including some of us here tonight and some people in the audience tonight. And uh, he also worked with a lot of different business mavericks outside of Google, um, like Steve Jobs, uh, who had strong ideas and even potentially stronger personalities. What was his approach with them? Well, I think we haven't, I think we've had one cuss word up here the whole time we've been up here, which would never have happened in a conversation with Bill Campbell. It would have been hundreds. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Bill's relationship with Steve was unique in that um, what had happened was he'd met Steve when Scully brought him in in 1983, and then Steve left for four years to do next, and when Steve came back in his second iteration with Apple, and Apple was in terrible shape, the first person he put on his board was Bill Campbell. And by then, they were very, very close friends. Um, and as Bill, as Steve got sick, Bill was intimately involved in his medical treatment and his personal life and so forth and so on. And they live near one another. And so they would go on walks together. 
Um, as Steve got sicker, Bill almost became the manager of Apple in that he would relay what Steve wanted, right, as it became harder and harder for him. So today, the extraordinary success of Apple, which is a trillion-dollar company on its own right, is really directly limited, li- linked to the role that Bill played in the last decade in Steve's life. I think Bill would also say, you know, marketing forgot that its first name was product. And I think he really learned that from Steve. And, you know, in How Google Works, we talk a lot about technical insights and how important, you know, the product is. Bill was just, Bill was just terrific at understanding that there were a set of geniuses that stood above everyone else in terms of creating great products. And he was very tolerant of those people as long as they didn't sort of seek the limelight and take all the credit for their team, uh, you know, as long as they had integrity and they didn't lie. But if they crossed the line uh, in terms of their behavior, then he would reach a point where he didn't have time for them. But if they were just difficult, and as we call in the book, aberrant geniuses, Bill would coach them and make them more successful because he believed you could get greatness out of those great people. And if somebody didn't start with greatness in them, then it was, there was nothing to extract. So he placed great value in those people. Uh, in the book, you quote Bill as saying, I hate consensus. What did he mean by that? So we talked a lot about how to, to run, the, run the empire, run the staff meetings, run the management teams, run the business process. Because although Google at the time was considered sort of strange and quirky, I wanted it to be an incredibly well-run organization. So Bill said, what do you think about consensus? And I said, well, you know, frankly, it sort of doesn't necessarily produce the right outcome. And at the time, consensus management was the rave. So we agreed that the goal was not to seek consensus, but rather to seek the best idea. And there was a way to do it. Interesting. So the way you do it is first, you propose a problem. You know, we have a problem. And then the people who talk all the time, like Jonathan, talk, 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 talk. <laughs> and when they're done... Right, the people who have extraordinarily interesting things to say get a chance, like Marissa, right? <laughs> and then make sure that she gets heard and make sure everybody gets heard and furthermore bring in people who are not in the meeting who might be relevant to the question. And your goal is to get to the best idea, not a consensus idea. And I think that of all the things that he did for us, that was probably the single biggest impact because it changed the way the company was managed. And then once you get to that idea, everyone has to rally around it. It's a team. So even if your idea didn't carry the day, you know, he would make sure everyone rallied around it. We, we talked to uh, Rachel Whetstone, who was, used to run comms and policy at Google. And she told the story about how she was really, you know, really committed to a particular idea. And she tried to move the meeting her way. And it didn't go her way. And afterwards, Bill sought her out, you know, found her in the hallway. And she expected sort of a pep talk. And, you know, we're going to get it next time. You know, here's how we're going to go back and attack this issue. And what he said was, suck it up. You lost this one. Rally for the team, and maybe we'll get the next one. When I was at Novell, uh, the culture was sufficiently bad or pessimal that what would happen is people would go like this during the staff meeting, and that meant that after I leave this door, I will do everything I can to assassinate your idea. (laughs) So I I had a lot of experience with lack of buy-in, and we were very, very focused on making sure that there was an explicit decision. Another idea, which I can actually give Jonathan credit to, was we would uh, project notes, uh, which we continued until the lawyers prevented us from doing this, of what was decided in every meeting. So we had an actual record of what everybody saw and saw it right in front of them. 
Did you notice Jonathan hasn't spoken since you told him he talks too much? <laughs> Can we let him talk? It's uncharacteristic. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, one of our audience members wants to know where was Bill wrong and when he was wrong how did he handle that well he often gave me advice that was wrong um, <laughs> and then he would generally tell me that you know he gave me lots of advice and as long as I followed the good advice uh, you know that was a reasonable strategy um, Bill I, you know I think he was he was very he wanted to turn the wheel, the flywheel, faster and faster. And so when he was wrong, he would cop to it very, very quickly, and he would just pivot and try something else. Um, so, you know, there were certainly lots of occasions where he would give me advice about managing the team and, and, and I mean, never about products or never, and never about strategy, but about people. And, you know, there, someone told us this story about a board member in the book who, you know, Bill really believed that board members should, what's his phrase, noses Noses in, hands out. Noses in, fingers out. Noses in, fingers out. So he was giving advice to uh, someone about a board member. Oh, it was Dan again. Dan, Dan, you're always in. Dan's in all of our stories. He was giving advice to one of the board members, and the, the, the guy basically would hijack the board meeting and wouldn't be prepared. And so Bill said, well, next time, Tell him what you want to talk about and point him to the pages in the board book that he needs to review in advance. So Dan did, tried to run the board meeting, and the same thing happened. And Bill went over to Dan and said, fire him. <laughs> so he gave I was, him. I was wrong. Fire him. Oh, I was wrong. Fire him. Yeah. And a yeah. few other words in there, too. Oh. <laughs> and and in, again, to make sure we fully documented Bill's role, Bill would also help manage the board. And boards are just as complicated as the management team with all sorts of special interests and difference of opinions. And the way we would work is he would talk to all the board members before the board meeting and give me a heads up if there were things of their concern. And at the same time, he would also sort of update them on what was going on in the company and things that would be coming to their attention. That bridge turns out to calm everything down mm -hmm. because when you never, ever want to walk into a board meeting with a surprise. But, but in your original question... Failure is part of the deal. And maybe it came from becoming, a, you know, being a football coach, being an athlete. You have to learn how to lose and recover. And, and more importantly, and, to iterate quickly. Yeah. Right? The, the key thing about tech is how fast you have to fail and how fast you have to get up on the field or whatever your metaphor is. Another question from one of our audience members is, says, hi, Eric, I'm like your younger self, 22 years old, UC Berkeley senior, commuting to work in SF. What kind of advice do you think Bill would have given me? to those of us who are about to enter the real world? I think that the, the idea that Marissa invented, the APM program for a 22-year-old, is probably the highest single impact that you can choose. Find a company that has such a program and do it. And the reason is that as a highly skilled undergraduate, you think you know everything, but you know relatively little about a large number of other things. And these APM programs allow you very, very quickly to sample many different things and find your true calling. Many of the APMs started off in one area, and they ultimately decided they were interested in healthcare, for example. And that became the thing that was defining in their, in their lives. And at 22, I don't think you have a, a real knowledge of where your passion is going to be, so you need an algorithm to get it. And I think that's what Bill would say. Yeah. His Coach Wooden advice was, it's what you learn after you know it all that counts. And I think you do see that in, you know, college recruits that would arrive to play basketball for John Wooden. And you see that in kids that come right out of school, right? The ones that are going to succeed are the ones that realize they're arriving into the workforce. 
They think they know it all, but they don't. And I would also say you can practice these skills even as a young person coming right into the workforce. Um, for example, interview as much as possible. If you're in a company, volunteer to interview. Uh, learn, you know, because then you'll get to know which people are coachable, which people are adaptable by interviewing them and, and starting to build that judgment in yourself. One of the things I think that often gets overlooked about Bill um, is that he was also a father. He has two amazing children, Jim and Maggie, and I got to hear a lot about them during the various coaching sessions. And so it's nice because actually I, um, I'm a little older than them, but Jim and I have multiple mutual friends, and so I've gotten to hear sort of the side of being yeah. Bill Campbell's son. And so I know that I asked Jim, like, what, what advice did your dad give you? And he basically said, it's not about you. It's about the team. And it's about doing something that really matters. It's about working on what's most important. And it's interesting because I, I'm not sure where, where Maggie ended up, but I know Jim is actually, um, has gone to do a lot of graduate work on journalism, one of the most important issues of the day, and, um, and has really embodied some of the key values that you've highlighted in the book. Bill was very proud that his son spent quite a bit of time in the Arab world, right? Learning about the foreign and so forth and so on. And we'll talk about that. Um, I think that the first thing I would say is that the single most important thing you do is be curious, right? In terms of advice. Um, and then the rest of it will sort itself out if you're disciplined and principled. And the book really describes these in great detail. And a lot of this has to do with motivation. So it is documented in the book and well known that for Bill, it was never about the cash or the stock or even the board seat. I was always amazed for years at Google, uh, ever taking a board seat. What is it that you felt really motivated? Well, what was bizarre was so Bill shows up and the guy is incredible. So my reaction is, OK, what would you like? You know, let's stock or cash or whatever. And he said, I don't want anything. And I said, you don't want anything? I mean, nobody doesn't want anything. I mean, something wrong with you. And he said, no, no, no. The Silicon Valley has been very good for me. This is my time to pay back, right, to honor the great gifts. I'm, I'm perfectly well set. This is happy. So I said, look, I need some help. You need to get on the board. And he said, no. And he didn't say maybe. He said, no. I said, well, don't you want to be on our board? It's like, you know, a cool board and all these nice people. And he goes, it would prevent me from doing what I'm supposed yeah. to do for you. So then I understood that he had a very specific plan for what he was going to do. He was going to be the coach coaching the board, not as a member of the board, but in practice, a functioning as a member. He was going to coach the management team, not as a member of the management team, but in practice. He attended all of our staff meetings, and he used his observational skills to then work one-on-one. -on -one. Another interesting thing is that during our meetings, and you'll remember this, he never said a word. And then in private, he would talk nonstop right? <laughs> because he had stored up all of his things. So what I concluded from this is that the currency that he valued was his impact on human beings, hmm. that the impact that he had in terms of affection, love, motivation, the satisfaction, the ultimate coach and teacher, he strived for that. When we all went to his funeral, a thousand people, every single one of them was his best friend. That's a great legacy. We had this great quote from Ronnie Lott, Hall of Fame player for the 49ers who worked with Bill Walsh when he played on the Niners. Then he worked with Bill Campbell in his business career post-football. And he said, uh, a coach is someone who lies awake at night thinking how to make other people better. Yeah. And that's his currency. Hmm. Um, how would Bill define leadership? We've talked a lot about leadership and the different attributes. But if you, how would he succinctly define leadership? I would just, I, it was the, your title makes you a manager, your people make you a leader. Um, you know, you don't you don't get there by virtue of your title. You get there by people electing you captain and you do it by showing them that you have principles 
and that you adhere to them? I think you, you have to embody everything. You have to embody trust. You have to embody discipline. You have to embody ideas. You have to embody quality. You have to embody leadership, right? And that's how you become naturally the leader. What's interesting with Steve Jobs, and I was on the board of Apple for four years, is he could be totally brutal if he was upset. But people loved to work for him because he was so he so embodied the principles of greatness that Apple at the time stood for. Right? People will be will follow you to those goals because they think it matters. We're getting to the end of our time together, and so I wanted to come back to some of the key important things that you learned from Bill. And so maybe first to you, Jonathan, then to Eric. What are the things that really stand out in your mind as the most important things that you learned from the time you got to spend with Bill? Yeah, and then, sure. Alan, you got have such a wonderful array to, to think about and look over. I mean, I, well, I guess I'll tell you the, a quick story because I think it reflects uh, the most important lesson that I learned from him. Um, you'll remember how proud I was in 2008 when that Gawker article came out, you know, called the tyrants of tech. And it was, you know, here's to the imperious chair throwing, screaming ones who will yell at you and get you to do what they need you to do and won't shut up until you've actually done it. Right. And Steve jobs was number one on the list. And Steve bomber was number two. And Mark Benioff was number three. And Dave Colburn was number four. And you remember, I was very proud because I was number nine. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, he literally gloated the entire one-on-one I, that week. I, 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 <laughs> it was really quite I went, in, I, went into, I went into Bill's office that week, and normally he was like right there at the table with you, and Debbie just led me into the office, and he wasn't there, but the article was sitting on the table. And I sat there with it for a little while, and then he came in, and basically it was my, What's, what the fuck is this? And I'm like, well, I'm number nine, Bill. And he's like, Rosenberg, I knew Steve Jobs. I worked with Steve Jobs. You're not Steve Jobs. <laughs> you don't get to do this. And he then took me to the woodshed. And even more importantly, then he, I had my five things I wanted to show him. And he threw me out of his office. And I came back two weeks later. Interestingly, he called Shona Brown after he threw me out. He said, just took Rosenberg to the woodshed. Might want to check on him. <laughs> <laughs> like, who does that? Anyway, I came back two weeks later. And I was ready to grovel and apologize and explain all the lessons that I'd learned. And he comes straight to the door and he hugs me and I'm starting to grovel and tell him, you know, now I've learned how to be a manager. That's not what you're supposed to do. He's like, Jonathan, you don't need to tell me what you learned. I took you to the woodshed. I administered the lesson. I know you learned the lesson. (laughs) And I think that was when I sort of started to improve and understood leadership. I'm sure it's hard to pinpoint just one or two things, Eric, but maybe a few that are salient. There were so many, but I think the one that that really had the biggest impact, as I mentioned, was this notion of going for the best idea, not the consensus idea. And I think I mentioned earlier how often the word love came up. And you just don't hear about that in a, you know, we're interviewing top business leaders and and the word love kept coming up. And and these are some, some of these are, we, we kept talking about this. Some of these things are simple, but hard. And so, you know, if you want to show people, you want to learn, you know, you want to care about people that you work with, stop for a few minutes and talk to them. You know, whether it's trip reports or just when you're walking back after getting a cup of coffee, drop in the office. What's going on? How are your kids? Just take those few extra minutes and, you know, really care about them. I'll give that's, you another, that's another example. We were at Google last week in inter- an internal meeting, and one of the executives told the story that they had a particularly good quarter in earnings, and that it was very well delivered. Bill runs in and he says, I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to the people who made you look so good. 
So they assembled the five people who were, you know, young, young, young Googlers. And he spent five minutes talking to them, impressing on them how great their work was. And then they left and then they got back to work. And I thought, who doesn't have five minutes to talk to the people who did the work? And those people talk to this day about that five-minute period. So on the topic of love, I think Bill would have loved this conversation, and I'm sure he would have loved the book. So both books, How Google Works and The Trillion Dollar Coach, you should buy them both <laughs> at independent bookstores. I, too, am coachable. <laughs> and let's give everyone a round of applause for a great conversation.